by the time you're done with episode 555 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear, you're going to be so sick of this song. But I like it, and I'm going to play the heck out of it on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, producer, and fan of Lon Janey Jr. and the movie Spider Baby. That's right. Finally, we're talking about Spider Baby. I've been sitting on this recording for a long time now. I had some technical difficulties, and I'll talk a little bit more about that here later in the episode. But we finally have the episode. It's finally going out, which means you're finally going to get to hear Chris Franklin from, well, a bunch of different podcast projects, including the House of Franklinstein, joining me for this conversation about the movie Spider Baby. In the past, people have called Monster Kid Radio a year-round monster convention or a year-round celebration of Halloween. In this particular week's episode, people who say that aren't that far off from the truth because this episode was recorded before Halloween. It was recorded, actually, at the very beginning, if not right before the beginning of October, which is when Chris Franklin and his wife, Cindy, do the House of Franklinstein podcast event. Now, Chris is going to tell you a little bit more about what House of Franklinstein is when he's on the show, when we talk about Spider-Baby. Even though it sounds like we're talking about something that's happening right now, it's already happened, which is even better because it means that all the episodes of House of Franklin's Sign, not just from previous years, but from last year as well, are now available in the archives over at Supermates and the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I will make sure there's a link in the show notes. You know who else is excited about getting this episode out? Kenny. Kenny has been sitting on a Spider Baby segment for his famous Monsters of Filmland look for a long time. We're finally going to get to run that as well. And then, of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without a beta capsule review from our friend Mark Matsky. I'm a little bummed out because this week's installment is pretty much near the end. I think he even says it's the second to last episode before the end of Ultraman. And... I know there's so much more Ultraman after that, but I've just had such a good time hanging out with the original, the OG Ultraman. I know Mark's going to make the rest of the series, you know, whatever he does the next. If he continues, no pressure, Mark, but I hope you continue <laughs> with uh, Ultra 7, the return of Ultraman, Ultraman Jack, Ultraman, and, yeah, all the Ultraman. Anyway, we're going to get to that as well. We've got Kenny. We've got Spider-Baby. We've got that song over and over and over again. Let's do it. Dracula. It's beautiful. 
light changed so much? As a flower changes from bud to bloom, past recognition. There once was a countess, young and fair, with tender skin and flaxen hair. Oh, countess, how do you keep your looks? What secrets in these ancient books? The book! What book? The chapter on blood sacrifices. Please help me. I don't know what's happened to me. Say it, lovely. Say it. Yes. Yes, yes, I love you. Yes. Don't you realize that you get uglier each time you get old? And you can't go on killing forever? Why not? Yes, baby, dance, come and dance with me. Hear the beat of the mountain sea. Ride, baby, ride, come and ride with me. Let your feet go easy. What do you make of this? Where does the other end go? It dumps into the ocean. It looks exactly like the South American Fantigua fish. I hope you can take one alive, Sheriff. I still believe that a human clawed that girl to death. The Beach Girls and the Monster. Starring John Hall, Sue Casey, and the glamorous Watusi dancing girls from Hollywood's famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Music by Frank Sinatra, Jr. You got a monster in the turf. Jinx, do you have a problem? You won't have after you meet the monster on the beach. If you see this ghoul, play it cool. Beauties in bikinis, laughing, singing, surfing, sinning. Beach party lovers making hey hey in the moonlight while the monster waits and watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one will kill you. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. The Science Patrol and Ultraman go off-world after Captain Muramatsu gives the Spaceship Rescue Command in the series' 38th episode. 
Japan's space agency has sent a probe called the Prospector to Planetoid Q. The probe's live feed is interrupted by a bright flash of light, which seemed to emanate from something on Q's surface. The pulse also disabled the V-2 space station, and these twin emergencies summoned the Science Patrol into action. Blasting off in the Shiratori, their brand new spacecraft, the SSSP navigates through an asteroid belt to find the crew of the V-2 temporarily blinded. But that's hardly all. The BM fuse of the station's main reactor must be replaced within 24 hours to avoid a major disaster. Their only hope is to travel to Q, remove a BM fuse from the prospector probe, and return, which will take roughly 23 hours. The captain, Hayata, Arashi, and Ide set out in a race against the clock. Nearing the surface of the planetoid, the Science Patrol spots two interstellar kaiju locked in battle. It's photothermal monster Kayla and quicksand monster Saigo. Taking advantage of the distraction, they embark in a heavily armed surface rover to obtain the probe's fuse. But Kayla, who proves to be the source of the energy pulse, keeps interfering, lurking around the probe and blinding Arashi with a burst of light. Can Ultraman buy them the time they need to save the V-2 with its crew? Spaceship Rescue Command, directed by Eiji Tsuburaya's eldest son, Hajime, is a suspenseful tour de force set almost entirely in space. Perhaps more than any other episode, this one embodies the spirit of the production, for in this second-to-last installment of the series, we are treated to new vehicles, new weapons, two new monsters, new powers of Ultraman, all in the new context of outer space. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Last week, I posed the question asking Mark publicly here on the podcast, because, you know, when you have a question for a friend, you want to do it in front of as many people as possible to put them on the spot. I, uh, <laughs> I asked Mark if he knew anything about what Mill Creek was doing regarding the Ultraman releases, since some of the Ultraman series were not being released in Blu-ray. And this is what he said in an email that he sent me, along with the previous segment. To respond to your question, according to Mill Creek, series that are being released on DVD were produced and archived in standard definition only. It is strange, though, that some of them have blue releases in Japan. Maybe they're upscaled high def? It's an open question. I'm just glad we've moved beyond bad bootlegs and or weird Malaysian subtitles. Cheers. I am in 100% agreement with you. It's great to have something official, even if it is standard definition. I don't know what the status is or what the definition is of the Japanese releases. Maybe it is just something that's been upscaled. I don't know. Uh, I do have, I believe one or two Blu-rays from Japan of movies that have never been released any other way, but standard definition in every other part of the world, but they're all in Japanese with no subtitles. So yeah, it's kind of hard to watch and enjoy them. Either way, I'm just excited that we're finally going to get Ultraman 80 officially on disc here in the States. Yes!
gentlemen, we are witnessing a biological chain reaction. A geometrical progression of deadly menace. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible. Its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous. Its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life the feats ascribed to 4D Man, $1 million in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. <laughs> Please. We're doing all we can for you. We're trying to bring you back down to normal size. You do think I'm a freak, don't you? But you know, to me, you're the freak. The one who's different. I'm not growing. You're shrinking. <laughs> he started as a normal human being. But now, each day, he doubles in size. Where will it stop? The amazing, colossal man. Colonel, he's been reported in Las Vegas. Impossible. How can he walk 120 miles in only an hour? Impossible. Not when you're 60 feet tall. The amazing, colossal man. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous monsters of Filmland. Screams and bones, bats and bones, and teenage monsters in haunted homes. A ghost on the stair, a vampire's bite. I better beware. There's a full moon tonight. <laughs> Today, Derek and his guest are talking about Spider Baby, starring Lon Chaney Jr. Let's listen to some of FM's first article dedicated to this iconic monster movie actor. It is entitled Son of Mr. Monster, and it appeared in FM 11 from April of 1961. It was eight pages long with nine photos. Here are some highlights. His father was a living legend, a hunchback, a blind man, a 100-year-old mandarin, a ventriloquist, 
an ape man, a mad scientist, an armless freak, a human vampire. It is hard to follow in your father's footsteps when he may have been a spider or a bat, or worse than a bat, have had no legs at all. Lon Chaney Sr., Master Monster No. 1, died in 1930. Lon Chaney Jr. made his first screen appearance two years later in 1932 at the age of 26. Born Creighton Toll Chaney in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1906, the son of the king of characterizations was destined to become known to the film world as Lon Chaney Jr. His father was in pictures 17 years, appeared in approximately 135 productions. Today, as he looks back over 28 years in the motion picture industry, Lon Chaney Jr. can say, Dying has been my living, for he has been killed time and again, and in fact, one of his films was called, I Died a Thousand Times. Lon Jr. has been shot, stabbed, strangled, electrocuted, drowned, burned, and generally killed in so many ways, only to return to menace still another horrified heroine that it was inevitable he should be cast in the role of the indestructible man. But before we get too deep into a consideration of the cinematic career of Lon Chaney Jr., let us turn back the clock to the time when he was just a moviegoer, or even earlier, instead of a movie actor. Creighton found out in the first seven years of his life that his father was a ham, an actor. Junior toured the country with Senior, and as a young boy got the smell of grease paint in his nostrils, and he watched his pop perform in stock companies throughout the Middle Western states. When Lon Chaney Sr. entered motion pictures, Junior entered high school, Hollywood High School. Upon completion of his studies there, he became associated with, of all things, a Los Angeles water heater business. Can you imagine the loss to the world if today Lon Jr. were president of the Creighton Chaney Champion Hot Water Company instead of a 28-year veteran of motion pictures? We can indeed be thankful that he chose to get a different kind of hot water. It was roughly 20 years ago that Lon Chaney Jr. began to appear in horror roles and build a reputation in the league with Peter Lorre, Basil Rathbone, George Zuko, Lionel Atwell, and other regulars of irregular characterizations. In Man-Made Monster, based on the story The Electric Man, he absorbed the dose of energy that made him almost invincible, a terrifying prospect for his enemies. In 1 million BC, Lon Jr. was a caveman surrounded by prehistoric monsters. In this action epic of ancient times, Lon shared dangers with Victor Mature and took quite a goring at the huge deadly tusk of an enraged mastodon, giant elephant-like beast of the primitive world. Then Lon Chaney Jr. created a characterization for which he was to be long remembered. He is best known in horror films for his role as the Wolfman, and in sequels to this film. It is quite interesting that Lon Jr. and his father should be so different in direct character types, and yet in monster type roles evoke the same type of pity. Lon Sr.'s films always had him playing a monster who is hideous, but yet one to be pitied. His son brought across this same quality when he began playing horror parts. 1942 saw Chaney standing 6 foot 9 inches tall, weighing 284 pounds, and menacing Lionel Atwill, Sir Cedric Hardwick, and others as the ghost of Frankenstein. 1943 offered Lon not only in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, but as the son of Dracula, and in Calling Dr. Death. 1944 was another ghostly year for the son of Chaney, 
as he essayed the role of the crumbling 3,000-year-old Egyptian, Karas, in The Mummy's Ghost. Same year, Lon Jr. also appeared in Dead Man's Eyes and Weird Woman. 1945 was a 12-month period wherein Lon was so busy trying to keep body and soul together that it seemed like a 13-month year to him. Time and again, he lost his life, only to come back for more punishment. He was the frozen ghost. In The Mummy's Curse, he, again as Karis, gets the tana leaf treatment from Dr. Izor Zanbad and is temporarily restored to life, long enough at least to be involved with three other people who lose theirs. In House of Dracula, he is once again Larry Talbot, Lincolnthrope who turns into a man-wolf when the moon is full. Before the year 1945 is done, Lon is back, this time in The House of Frankenstein. Will Lon one day catch up with the thousand faces of his father? He's had varied roles in The Bride and the Gorilla, Strange Confession, Cyclops, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Black Castle, Pillow of Death, Black Sleep, and his latest appearance in Mexico's La Momia. Soon to be released on TV is the number 13 Demon Street series, shot in Sweden under the direction of scripter Kurt Siadnak, with segments such as Fever, Girl in Ice, Mirror, and The Fortune Teller. Creighton Tall Chaney tackles television. May he have good fortune and continue to thrill his fans with at least another 100 faces before he joins his father in Hororama's Balala of Fame. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more soon. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. From caves and sewers come the slime people to kill, kill, kill. There is no escape from the slime people. The slime people. Nothing can stop the horror of the slime people. For a new adventure in terror, live through the wild bloodbath of the slime people. With lust they come, with vengeance and murder. See the nightmare of the slime people. Bigfoot, the missing link, found and filmed in the woods of Northern California. Bigfoot, filmed in Bosburg, Washington. Bigfoot, filmed in a beaver swamp. Authentic motion picture footage, never before seen. Now, in the legend of Bigfoot. You may think you are normal, but you are all the product of mutations. Your ancestors, our ancestors, were freaks. The Mutations, a journey into the world of monsters and madmen. He's one of us. We accept you. He's one of us. Yes. Our brother. Shut Our loving father. Enter a world of freaks. Get back! Stay away from me! The Mutations, from Columbia Pictures, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. The Mutations, once created, they can never be stopped. <coughs>
Before we get into the recording about Spider Baby with Chris Franklin, I want to give everybody a heads up about some of the technical difficulties we had. Now, I've talked about this on previous episodes of the podcast. I don't know 100% why this happened, but I was having some hard drive issues during this time. And while I was recording the Spider Baby conversation with Chris, the audio recording got interrupted and not in a very clean way. And what I mean by that is it just stops in mid-sentence sometimes. So I tried to work around it as best as I could. However, I ended up getting to the point where, you know, I'm just going to leave it in there. I'm going to let the listeners know what's up. And I'll indicate the break, the bridge between segments where there was that audio break, that audio glitch, with a little bit of the Spider Baby song. You're welcome. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Welcome to the strangest podcast ever heard. It's Monster Kid Radio with a guest this week that hasn't been on the show in a very, very long time, but he's no stranger to podcasting. I'm talking with Chris Franklin. How you doing, man? Hey, Derek. How's it going? I'm doing well. You know, this is the time of year when you get busy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, real busy. I Years ago on our Supermates podcast, we put an episode out every two weeks. And then I soon realized, I'm not you, Derek. I can't put an episode out even two weeks, let alone once a week. Uh, so we scaled that back, but we always go back to the old schedule when the House of Frankenstein series rolls around in September and October. So we, we go monsters. Uh, you do it all year. We do it for two months. So, <laughs> And I like the approach of the take, the House of Frankenstein. I want to make sure that I've got this right. You look at a monster movie. Most of the time it's a classic, but every once in a while you dip into like the 60s, 70s, 80s, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, you talk about that movie, but then you also find a way to connect that to a comic book. And then you talk about that comic as well. That's kind of been our niche, like from the beginning. And Cindy even asked earlier this year, I was like, do we always have to do a comic? My wife, Cindy, does the, the podcast with me. And I'm like, yes, we have to, because that's, <laughs> that's kind of the thing that separates us from, you know, and not that that's anything bad, but I mean, it's just, it, it's like our unique thing. You know, the, there may be another podcast. There's so many podcasts nowadays. There may be another podcast doing that. And certainly there's a bunch of horror comic podcasts. But we tend to look at like a superhero comic where they encounter a monster of that type that's from the movie. Like if we did a Frankenstein, we did uh, Ghost of Frankenstein in the first episode this year. So we did the X-Men meet Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster, obviously. Uh, sure. So, well, it really wasn't Frankenstein's monster. Well, yeah. <laughs> Marvel's got a weird history with the Frankenstein character. Right, right. But yeah, that is our thing. And uh, this is our eighth season uh, doing House wow. of Frankenstein. Yeah, I know. I can't believe it. it. It's one of those weird things where like 
We've really been doing it seven years. The podcast is seven years old, but we've been doing it for eight years. I'm really bad at math, but it re- we really, I counted. We've done, this is the eighth season of it. Uh, so yeah, it's it's always fun. I look forward to it, but it keeps me on my toes. That's for sure. <laughs> so where can people hear the House of Franklin sign and the other podcast stuff you've got going on? It is on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That's uh, fireandwaterpodcast.com. There's a lot of shows out there. Me and my buddies uh, on the network, we've got shows about comics. We've got shows about sitcoms, about like MASH and and Cheers cast. And then we've got movie shows. There's a Citizen Kane minute. And then on a complete opposite end of the spectrum, there's a Superman movie minute. And... And not not for Superman the movie, but for Superman three. That's what Rob Kelly and I are covering right now. So he's <laughs> he's covering Rob is covering Citizen Kane and also Superman three at the same time. So. As a kid, I loved Superman three. I loved Superman right. two was always my favorite, but Superman three I loved, and I haven't watched it in a good twenty years. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember I was working at a video store and I thought, you know, let's just put it in the in-store monitor. And I remember thinking the opening credit sequence was actually pretty clever. This kind of weird Rube Goldberg-esque opening sequence. But then it, you know, continued. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it didn't really hold up. You know, it didn't strike the same nostalgia chords that a lot of the movies do for me. (laughs) I have never, some people like hate that film. I have never felt that way. I do feel like it was an odd decision to make a Richard Pryor vehicle yeah. out of a Superman movie. Um, it, you know, but there are actually parts of that movie that thankfully we're getting to right now in our coverage. that are actually some of my favorite in the entire series. And yeah, no, su- no surprise. It's the junkyard sure. fight guys. It's <laughs> yeah. I was going to say the junkyard <laughs> stuff, man, that, that sequence is classic, classic and you know the bit with him in the bar when he's yep. kind of gone bad and he's you know flicking the peanuts or whatever that is a very popular yes, animated is. gif so yeah, yeah you'll see yeah, that's kind of like <laughs> taking on a life of its own right so yeah it's uh yeah it, it's mm-hmm. it has been a lot of fun of course we covered the first two movies and and of course they're they're just classics and uh, i mean we were extremely fortunate enough we got to interview richard donner on that show I mean, that was just, wow, you know, and unfortunately we just lost Richard Donner recently, but he, I mean, I can say this, he was just as genuine as you've ever seen in any of his interviews on any of the special features. And he was just a stand up regular guy that was just as friendly and as warm as could be completely put us at ease. It was fantastic. Uh, I have had a lot of fun with that. And uh, my wife, Cindy and I do JLU cast which covers the Justice League animated series. And Derek, you were on that show earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about Ixthul yep. 2. <laughs> <laughs> but we got a little pseudo Lovecrafty in there. That was fun. <laughs> a little, a little. They uh, they were barely trying to paper over the fact that it was yeah. Cthulhu. Uh, Ixthul But it was Dr. Fate, so I was down. Yeah. I like Dr. Fate a lot. Yes, so. you like Dr. Fate. It was like a Defenders tribute episode where they, like, Yep. It somehow did a Marvel show in the middle of this DC show and it, and it was a lot of fun. So yeah, we, yep. Cindy and I do that most of the year and then we come back and do Supermates and do House of Frankenstein. So yeah, we have a lot of fun over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, of course, I'll make sure there's links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net to all of this because we want people to be able to check it out when they're done listening to you here as we talk about a movie. But before we get to the movie, you know what we got to do. The Classic Five! 
Oh man, you just gave me a new voice to add to the chorus. I love it. The Classic Five. For listeners who don't know, The Classic Five is a game that we play on every episode of Monster Kid Radio. Well, almost every episode. I'm going to draw five cards from a deck of cards here that present questions about monster movies. It's not a trivia game. It's just a this or that, which movie do you prefer style uh, question kind of game. It just lets us know a little bit more about this week's guest. Chris, are you ready to play a round of The Classic Five? Oh yeah, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Now, I've kind of tailored some of these to this week's episode. Okay. Not including the movie we're talking about this week. What is your favorite non-werewolf Lon Chaney film? Ooh, that's a good one. You know, honestly, I have to step outside the genre and say of Mice and Men. Oh, he's so good in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I really feel like Lon Chaney Jr. was robbed of an Academy Award for that movie if that role was done now, the way Cheney did it, I think he would have been, he would have got some serious, uh, some serious cred in the industry, you know, uh, as, as critical acclaim wise, he's just wonderful in it. And I mean, I think some of that Lenny portrayal is in this film. We're going to talk about today too. So oh, I, I, you can see some, just a touch of his Lenny in the Wolfman films. Yeah. You see some Lenny in this, you see some Lenny in Manfish of all things. Uh, yeah. So you, you get, yeah. I mean, it's an iconic performance that has nothing to do with the kind of stuff we normally talk about here, but monster kids, I highly recommend it. Sounds like Chris does too. It's so good. Yeah. It's got Burgess Meredith in it too. So, I mean, you, you know, go. for, for me being the, uh, I mean, obviously Burgess Meredith is way more than ever played the Penguin. You know, as a Batman guy, and especially the classic TV show, it, I mean, that's a double whammy of Burgess Meredith and Lon Chaney Jr. And it's just a wonderful movie. Of course, it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful movie. And, and I did not know for years and years as a kid that all those characters in the Looney Tunes cartoons that said, I will love him and pet him and hug him and kiss him. And I will name him George. That was a take on... Lon Chaney Jr.'s Lenny, and I yeah, did not same, know that for same. years. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's see. Question number two. This movie takes place in a pretty big, spooky house. What's your favorite haunted house movie? Oh, man. Well, I guess it is The House is Haunted. Uh, the Innocence. Ooh, uh, good yeah. call. Oh, okay. yeah. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until... The Innocence. That movie just unnerved me, man. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, very few older horror movies actually scare me. You know, they they like they actually. I said unnerve, and I, that's the best word to use. They, I mean, after I watched that film for the first time about like ten years ago or so, I was literally like unnerved after watching it. It's so atmospheric so spooky and so i mean it raises so many questions especially the ending of it but i mean it's just it's just so well done i mean i know it's it's an adaptation of the turn of the screw and and i've seen other adaptations of that but i i just i just really just love that movie and i've I've, i'm trying i need to get that i don't have it on it but i was telling my daughter about it because she loves ghost stories and haunted house stories and things. And I'm like, you've got to see that movie. So I've, I've got, that's on my, I got to go to Amazon and order that thing. That's <laughs> I'll go through the monster kid radio link. And, and oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, no, it's a good film. It's a great film and I need to set up a time to do it. But Kevin Slick and I are going to talk about that on the show mm. at some point. So I need to make that happen because, Oh, it's so good. Yes. Oof. All right. Well, question number three, there are some pretty creepy kids in this movie. 
What's your favorite classic monster movie with a creepy kid or children? Oh, well, you could say The Innocence again. Uh, yeah, you could, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think creepy kid. Is there a creepy... <sighs> Is there a creepy kid in a hammer film? Uh, hmm. Mm. I, I don't think so. Not that one that, oh, well, the nanny with, uh, yeah. with Betty Davis. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would say, of course, uh, you know, the, uh, the village of the damned and, you know, children mm. of the mm-hmm. damned, those are obviously very creepy kids. Uh, that comes to mind, but yeah, the innocence, I, I, I hate to use the same one again, but that's hey, probably no, it works. honestly my favorite. Yeah. Have you ever seen the bad seed? I have 19. not. I've heard oh. about it, but I've never seen it. Dude, Patty McCormick is a evil little kid in that movie. It's it's horrifying. Oh, I, I would recommend The Bad Seed from 1956. I haven't talked about it here on the show. I want to at some point because I'm literally, and I I am using the word correctly, literally, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Ooh, I'm going to check that out. Oh, oh, okay. Horrifying. I'll write that down. <laughs> All right, so those are the only three that I had kind of tailored. I'm going to draw some from the deck here. Uh, which movie do you prefer, the giant Gila monster or the Killer Shrews? Uh, I've got to go with the Killer Shrews because it's got James Best in it. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the Killer Shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see the Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece, the Killer Shrews. I grew up loving James Best as Roscoe P. Coltrane. <laughs> but he also shows up on two episodes of the Andy Griffith Show, and I'm a big Andy Griffith Show fan. Oh, okay. uh, he was a guitarist in Mayberry who tried to make it big and on there, and it, it, he was he was really good on that. And I, when it's James Best shows up, I'm like, hey, I've just he's just one of those guys I just instantly like, and he seemed like he was like a really nice guy in real life. So uh, yeah, I got to go with Killer Shrews plus the whole you know dressing dogs up. It's <laughs> That's giant killer shrews. It's a fun time. It's a fun time. All right, last card. Which movie do you prefer? Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts? Oh, I got to say Jason and the Argonauts just for the skeletons. Now, from the makers of Sinbad, Columbia Pictures presents Jason and the Argonauts. The mightiest band of warriors the world has ever known. Turn back, Jason! Sailing to the ends of the earth, battling against an incredible number of obstacles. Where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. In search of the fabulous magic golden fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, caught in the clutches of the towering bronze giant Talos, battered by treacherous falling rocks, taming vulturous harpies, Facing the dreaded seven-headed Hydra. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy all the Harry Allison films, but that's one's got to be, uh, it, you know, and it's got that's the one's got Nigel Green as Hercules too, right? I believe so. Yeah, I like I like him too. I always like when Nigel Green shows up in things, and and uh, he was in Countess Dracula, you know, too. He mm-hmm. was that he was a stuffy official general or whatever he was in that, and I like him. It's got to be Jason the Argonauts. I gotta I gotta go with that one. We just talked about Let's Kill Uncle, yeah, uh, on the show a couple weeks back, and he's in that. So yeah, he's great. Right on. Well, that is the classic five. 
I Pretty pass. easy. There you go. You pass. Your prizes. You get to talk to me about Spider Baby or the maddest story ever told here on the podcast this week. Or the cannibal orgy or the liver eaters or <laughs> <laughs> the liver eaters. What? I mean. <laughs> hey, you know, when you got a Jack Hill film, <laughs> I think you can expect some uh, exploitation tactics when it comes to trying to sell the thing and, and promote it, right? Yes, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right so the movie's from 1967 that's when it was released uh christmas eve in fact was its actual premiere date down in texas um not necessarily the movie i'd take the family to on christmas eve but well okay let me, let me take that back that's exactly the kind of movie i'd take my family to on christmas eve but <laughs> for most people <laughs> oh man uh and i don't know how well it did theatrically i i haven't really dug that deep into it but I know it's considered a cult film now. I know it's one that's had a nice release on Blu-ray a couple of times by now. Uh, and I, I know it's one that um, uh, a lot of people will look at when they talk about Sid Haig's history in horror, because this is pretty early in his career in the genre. And man, it's just a really creepy, it's got some dark comedy, but overall I come away from this film feeling kind of shooken up a little bit. Yeah. There's definitely something unsettling about it. I mean, watching it again this time, it struck me that this feels like a really twisted episode of the Munsters or the Adams Family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think anybody was ever eaten or you know murdered on the Munsters or the Adams Family. Yeah, I don't think uh, anybody was murdered there. Yeah. <laughs> so oddly enough, it was made in 1964 when those shows came on, and it just mm-hmm. didn't get released for uh, like three and a half years or something. So. It's got that feeling, and it's such an interesting mix of characters that watching it again, when you know, when you watch something for a podcast, I know you, you're the same way, and we always say this. It's like you notice things more than if you were just like casually watching it. Mm-hmm. And you have to question some of these characters, like Uncle Peter, why is this guy so chipper through this whole movie? You know, <laughs> he's like Brad from uh, from Rocky Horror Picture Show without being such a sap. <laughs> You know, in some ways. <laughs> you know, the first time I saw this, uh, I, I had that same thought. I was like, well, on the one hand, it's like, why is he so chipper despite everything that's going on? But he also seemed like a guy who's just like eternal optimist. You know, he just totally chill with everything and he's kind of, kind of rolled with the punches. It's played by Quinn K. Rediger, and he's, you know, he's great. And I really, the first time I saw it, was worried that he was going to fall victim to playing a game of Spider. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think he really like, you know, he was really nice to the kids. And but then I think he realized, okay, maybe I was a little too nice, too indulgent uh, with uh, Virginia here. Uh, Yeah, let's uh, (laughs) let's calm down a little bit when you've coming at me with the two knives and you're going to sting me, as she often says. (laughs) Poor Manton Moreland, though, at the beginning. And (laughs) I, I knew that he wasn't long for this world. But uh, he was fun to watch. I, I mean, I know he's he's known for his scare takes, and I, I know he got some flack later on, maybe fueling fire of stereotypes and things at the time. But he also was, you know, one of the few African Americans showing up in predominantly white films too. So in a lot of ways, he was breaking down barriers, even if maybe from a modern perspective, some of his portrayals were not exactly, you know. 
uh, let's say, you know, the best portrayal, you know, uh, but he still, he was there. And, you know, like you said, he, he became somebody that you're like, oh, I know that guy, you mm-hmm. know, you instantly recognized him. And I was kind of surprised when I first watched this, cause I thought, you know, she's going to scare him off and he's going to get away and he's going to ride off on his little scooter. And uh, no, he, <laughs> poor guy gets stuck in the window and uh, Virginia, it doesn't really show it, thank goodness. But yeah, other than his ear hitting the floor, which is like, that was kind of shocking the first time. Oh yeah. It. And I'm sure it was shocking. Yeah. At the time too, it's, it's pretty bloodless. We know, I mean, we can hear the sounds and, yeah. and we know something like that's going to be pretty bloody, but to see the ear, there's something just shocking about having this one detached ear hit the ground as opposed to imagine, you know, actually seeing, you know, knife going into something or whatever. I was pretty impressed by that. And just that set the mood for the whole thing. It, like you said, it, it conjures up it, again. It, it's, it's not there on the screen, but you can just imagine, Ooh, you know, yeah, but it's, it, it is sanitized enough to be um, palatable to the, <laughs> to the audiences of the time. Although, like you said, there probably were quite a few people that were surprised by this because it does, it does have such a, quirky sense of humor about it is it is like you said very much a dark comedy and and the Mm -hmm. kids the portrayal of the kids kind of it vacillates between like caricatures from a a sitcom but then they murder people (laughs) you know (laughs) so it's like whoa okay but it but it it somehow all works and they just somehow murder people (laughs) (laughs) Um, Beaver and Wally Cleaver gone bad, you know, or something. You know, it has had too. like the setup feels like a sitcom, you know, and then it doesn't. (laughs) Right. Bruno's like an Uncle Charlie to the murderous My Three Sons or something. Right, right. (laughs) You know, and then we get the murder of of the mailman and them dealing with the body and, and all of that. And then we go right back to a sitcom setup. You know, you've got the long lost family member coming to claim the property for the, mm. themselves. That's what it really feels like something from the Adams family of the monsters. That's a really good way to put it. It does. It's like there, here's the gold digging cousin mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, she's got her, she's lawyered up and you know, the lawyers, he's a blowhard with the, I mean, you instantly don't like this guy. He's got a Hitler mustache. I mean, <laughs> 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 he looks Weasley from the beginning, from the get-go. Yes, he does. <laughs> and his name's Schlocker. So, I mean, yeah. you know. What's for... <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. I mean, if it's, you know, he's smoking a cigar. If, historically, Hitler, J. Jonah Jameson, you know, characters that I'm not comparing J. Jonah Jameson to Hitler, but I'm just saying that visual is somebody you're not supposed to like, right? So <laughs> this guy's got that mustache. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he's in the conversation he has with, uh, Bruno Lon Chaney Jr. in the car, you know, it's an interesting conversation as we go along, we learn more about how devoted Bruno is to this family. And I, I just found myself wondering, you know, what connection did Bruno have to their father? I mean, he like, did their father save his life or something at, at some point that he felt so indebted to the Mary family to take care of these kids and with all that, that they go through, you know, it's just that these questions, these are the type of things I think about. So. <laughs> well, you know, and that, that's a really good question because he is presented as not being part of the family proper. He's not related by blood. He's a chauffeur. He's a butler, whatever. But now that you say that, it makes me wonder because 
I mean, the whole thing, the Mary syndrome results from lots of inbreeding. So maybe he's connected to the family in a way that never really gets talked about. I don't know. It's yeah. a stretch. I couldn't help but think, too, because I saw this after I saw the X-Files episode Home. Oh. <laughs> Remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> and the whole inbreeding, creepy family thing, that immediately sprung to mind. And and full disclosure, when that episode, well, I missed it the first time it aired. But the second time, you know, they took it off. We're never going to air this again. Right. And then a few months later, like, ah, we're kidding. We're going to air it again. Uh, I think that was a publicity stunt. Uh, but, oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, when we watched that, when Cindy and I watched that years ago, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was now, we lived not too far from a family that honestly kind of reminded me somewhat of those people. Oh, uh, no. So, yeah. So it was extra scary. So then when you bring this up, it's like, hmm, that brings back some. Some kind of scary memories there. <laughs> well, and, you know, again, that, that makes me think. And I wonder, this is not the only time that we see horror villains portrayed as being the result of some sort of inbreeding. I mean, we've got this. We've got that episode of Home. Isn't Texas Chainsaw kind of implied as well? Yeah. that it. In, this reminds me of that a lot, too. You know, so the, the yeah. How far back does that trope go? Did this start that trope? I, I don't know. I'd be curious to find out, though. Me, too. I, I don't know if there's like an old pulp story that maybe has something like this in it. But, yeah, Texas Chainsaw and, uh, of course, House of a Thousand Corpses. And, of course, mm-hmm. it hangs in that. Right. Uh, Rob Zombie films. It, just, it feels like this movie, this idea of this this family that's cursed with <laughs> that all goes back to incest and inbreeding. Uh, it seems like it, like you said, I can't think of anything before this. Uh, your listeners will probably be able to tell us if, if there is one. So. <laughs> I don't know much about Jill Banner though. Do you know anything about the rest of the cast at all with this? All I know is just what I read online that Jill Banner, she was in the president's analyst and then she was on quite a few uh, Jack Webb TV shows like Adam 12 and Dragnet 67 after this and, and uh, probably kid, kid in trouble, you know, on the wrong, you know, in getting into drugs or something there, you know, that Joe Friday has to uh, (laughs) steer him clear of or something like that. And uh, my understanding was that uh, unfortunately she died young in a car accident uh, in the early eighties. And I think she was working on scripts for Marlon Brando at the time. Like she was, connected to Marlon Brando at the end of her life, which is kind of odd, but you know, it's Hollywood. So, um, you know, people connected in, in strange ways, but I thought she was, apparently she was like 17 when they filmed this and she's very good. And, and of course, Beverly Washburn is too. And I, I mean, I knew her from, uh, Star Trek, of course, and Superman and the mole men and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, old, old yeller. She's, you know, in yeah. old yeller. So, uh, you know, I knew her as a child actress, I think even before I connected the dots that, oh, that's the same actress on Star Trek. And of course, she's the the one character from the episode, The Deadly Years, who dies of the old age that the crew's afflicted with. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, they're they're great. And I mean, I love the back and forth with uh, Beverly Washburn. Just like Bruno's going to hate you for this. Just she's <laughs> she's such a little <laughs> snitch, you know. Uh, and it's kind of interesting to think which one of them is older because the way the disease, the Mary, Mary syndrome works, apparently, 
is when you hit 10 years old, while you continue to grow, you start to mentally degenerate. So Bruno leaves Elizabeth in charge. That's Beverly Washburn. And and then, you know, Virginia's the one that's going around like killing the messenger and things. And and so is Elizabeth older and or is she younger, but she's mentally older because <laughs> you know, now Virginia has started to, you know, go through the worst part of the syndrome. I don't know. It just uh again, these are things that I think about. And of course, you get the idea that Ralph's older than them, but if he's at the mental her, yeah. state he's in now, yeah. And yeah, it's and Sid Haig, like you said, is just he goes so I mean, he goes for it in this role. There's no holding back. I mean, other actors would probably not have you know, went as as far as he did with like the the faces he makes and the the noises and when Emily the cousin comes to the house and he reaches for her and he makes that ah you know kind of mm-hmm. face and sound. I mean, it's but it's a great it's a great performance. <laughs> I mean, all all three kids are fantastic and the two girls. The scene when they catch Schlocker down in the basement and they're silhouetted on the stairs. That is a creepy scene. That's one of the scariest moments in the whole film for me. He he turns and he looks up the stairs and they're just both standing there. And then when the light hits, you see Beverly Washburn standing there just staring. But Jill Banner's already got the knives in spider baby position. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's great. It's chilling. I mean, it really it's really effective and it's. This movie does a great job of, I mean, you actually kind of, you catch yourself giggling at the interaction with these characters and, you know, in their conversations with, with Bruno are so heartfelt because Lon Chaney Jr. approaches this as just, he's so earnest and sincere with his love of these kids in this movie that it's so strong. It just, I mean, it resonates with you. I mean, you just, you feel like all the years that he spent with these kids have actually happened. It's like he totally sells that, and they do too with him. And you know, at one minute you're like, "Oh, this is this is sweet." These they genuinely love each other, but then they go off and kill people, and he has to cover it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine if my parents came home and I had been left alone, and they discovered that I had killed the mailman. I don't think it would turn into a. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. All right. Well, don't don't be bad again. You know, just like what? Yeah. Whereas I feel like it could be really easy to just portray him as like some sort of outcast in the family and you know, they just tolerate him. No, they they truly care about him too. Yeah, they they definitely do. And I mean they they even the uh the uncle and two aunts that are in the basement they lovingly refer to them like, you know, Uncle oh, Uncle Ned and, and Aunt Martha. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, and of course, they you don't have to be alive to kill, still get that love because uh, they keep old dad up in the <laughs> in his room, uh, his corpse, uh, which. Yeah. And I remember when I first watched that, I'm like, OK. He's going to be, you know, mutated or, or he's, you know, it's going to be disfigured or he's going to be dead and they're not going to show it at first. And then they're going to wait till the end of the movie and somebody's going to run into that room and then see him. No, no. They act like they're going to do that. Jack Hill does. They start to pull away. Then they pull back up 
and show you there's the corpse in the bed. And it's kind of, they kiss him goodnight and it's, I don't want to go too far with this, but there's some, there's some other questions that, <laughs> that are kind of raised by that, that are, Oh, given the incest <laughs> and everything that goes on in that family, it's like, uh, you know, there's so. some creepy, the way, uh, one of the kids interacts with uncle Peter is a little, uh, squirmy. Yes. Um, it's very squirmy. It's a little like, Oh yes. And, and honestly, the squirmiest part for me was when Emily is, you know, they chase, of course, Emily, for some reason, uh, puts on lingerie and is, you know, parading around in front of a mirror when Ralph comes to into her window window like a peeping Tom mm-hmm. and they chase her out of the house after they've killed Schlocker. And it's very obvious that Ralph rapes her to, to me. Maybe it's not to you, but I, it seems yeah. to me that has to be what happened. Um, yeah. And when she gets up, she's asking for Ralph, like Ralph, Ralph. Again, when I first watched this, I'm like, oh, I hope she's not like suddenly into Ralph. This isn't, uh, this isn't like, uh, young Frankenstein with Madeline Kahn and Peter Boyle. I hope not because I mean, oh. <laughs> that works in that film barely because, mm-hmm. because it's Madeline Kahn and she sells the comedy aspect, but really that shouldn't work, you know, but no, she's not into Ralph. She just wants to kill Ralph now. And, I'm I'm glad I'm glad she wants to I'm glad they didn't go there I'll put it that way you know yeah. because if they went there then that was like okay I I can't get behind this that's that's not yeah but no she just wants to push Ralph's eyes in uh, so yeah well you know <laughs> and you can who can blame her right <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah it, it, this movie gets really dark at the end <laughs> yeah it does. Yeah, Maybe we're does. jumping ahead too much, but I'll just say it. It's, it's, well, I mean, I feel like it's one that a lot of people have access to now. I know there was a period of time, like in the 70s and 80s, when it was kind of hard to see. Uh, it was considered lost for a long time, uh, but it's out there now. People can see it pretty easily. Uh, in fact, when we were talking about doing this here on the show, you were concerned that you weren't going to be able to find a copy to watch. I was like, well, it's in public domain. So yeah, it's everywhere. Right. Uh, right. That said, there are some really nice Blu-ray releases of it out there that I would recommend because they really have gone to great lengths to restore it and make it look crisp. And just the special features are awesome. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to those, of course, as well. I want to talk about what had to have been an end joke. I can't imagine this was actually in the script until they cast Lon Chaney Jr., and that's when Peter and is it Mary? Is that the the secretary ter- type person? Whatever. Anne played Anne, by Mary yeah, Mitchell. Anne. Played Mary by Mary Mitchell. Mitchell. Played Anne. Yep. Played yep. Anne. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Mary Mitchell plays Anne, and you've got Peter, and she. I don't know how it comes up over dinner. They're talking about whatever you talk about at the Spider Baby's house for dinner, and uh, Mary Mitchell talks about liking horror movies and she starts name dropping the wolfman yeah and he even says well there's going to be a full moon tonight you know yeah so. <laughs> yeah it goes immediately to her or to him yep <laughs> yeah i love that and, and later they talk about you know when they're uh, uh peter and and ann leave to go find an inn to stay and instead they go drinking and which they're out driving while they're drinking kids this is not don't do that that's bad uh but <laughs> but but uh they bring up the Wolfman again. He's like, do you really like the Wolfman? And she's like, I think all men should be that way. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. 
<laughs> you just well, told us a lot about yourself there, Ann. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love that that nod, and I feel like you know it's been brought up before. I think Joe Dante said on uh, there's that um, Lon Chaney documentary on the Universal box set. He says that this is uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s targets. You know. Um, in a lot of ways, this is his last great performance, I guess. He didn't, he did a lot of stuff after this and unfortunately his health kept declining. I mean, in a lot of ways this is, so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he obviously was appreciated, you know, by Sid Haig. And I know that, you know, Sid Haig said that he was so nervous to, to speak to him until he went to get him from his trailer to come shoot and, you know, uh, uh, Jack Hill sent him to retrieve him, and he called him Mr. Cheney. He said, no, I'm Lon, and you're Sid. And, you know, that's we're working on this together. And he put him at ease, and after that, he got along great with him. And And Redeker had said that uh, he sat in his trailer and listened to, you know, stories of Hollywood, old Hollywood, and while he made his homemade mustard. And that's <laughs> – with all these stories <laughs> of Cheney making mustard and chili all the time. So Right. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's Lon Cheney – you know, Junior in in a lot of his later films, he I, I love the actor. This is nothing against, of course, but he does appear very sweaty in a lot of his later roles, and he's he's definitely that way here. And they talked about how it was so hot in the an air conditioned studio that they filmed in that they literally had to like wipe him down with ice water in between take. But it it fits the character because he's a character who's trying. To keep this facade together, he's promised the father that he's going to take care of these kids. He swore an oath. Swore an oath. Yeah, he's so wrapped up in that. I mean, and and he's committed to making sure this family stays together one way or another. He's not going to see him separated. He's not going to break that oath. And I mean, he takes it to the ultimate level at the end, obviously. But it fits in that, especially when these people show up and destabilize this life that he's maintained for them, you feel like he's always trying to defend them from the outside world because he knows if the outside world gets in, then they're going to act out and they're going to be taken away or, or worse. I mean, he even mentions those two kids that got over the fence before. And I guess those are probably the two kids that, that Matt and Moreland asks about earlier in the film. And the mom takes them into the house, yeah, you know, yeah. quickly, you know, Lon Chaney's physical, state at the time actually fits the character in this film. I think. Yep. I agree. I agree. Now I know that Lon Chaney had his demons. I, I know that. I think we all know that. And I'm not making fun when I make comments like that for the record. I think that it did fit for this. And if the internet movie database is to be believed, you look at like the trivia section for this film and they talk about how the cast and crew would give a standing ovation to Lon Chaney after certain performances. The man knew how to act. The guy really knew his craft. He did the work and was so good at what he did. I think sometimes when we think of the older Lon Chaney films, we just think about the drunk guy who may or may not have been drunk during that live episode of Frankenstein for that one thing or whatever, you know, but something like this shows that he still had it. Yeah, he still had it. He's yeah, when still he, so good. Yeah, when he's given material like this, he really shines. And I, and I think that you know everything I know about Lon Chaney Jr. He loved kids. I mean, he mm -hmm. tried to he tried to adopt 
Janet Ann Gallo, who was in Ghost Frankenstein and, and her brother after her mother passed away. Uh, you know, he offered to and her father's like, no, that's OK. Uh, but, you know, he could <laughs> he could have provided him. You know, he was obviously very wealthy from his mm-hmm. his stardom and everything. But he loved children. So I think that fits into this movie. I think. Like we said, the character of Lenny, he, you know, he are, he essayed this character, you know, he had mental disabilities. I think that's another reason he may be related to the character of Bruno. He's basically raising kids that are yeah. somewhat like Lenny. And of course, I mean, by all accounts, Lon Chaney, Creighton Chaney had a tumultuous relationship with his father, Lon Chaney Sr., to the point where senior lied up to him that his mother was dead for years so you know obviously there there's some problems there right and you know depending on who you believe Chaney senior either didn't want him to get into acting because he didn't want to see him go through what he did or he was jealous of him and didn't want him to steal his thunder i don't know which one's true but either way you know lon Chaney had some father issues lon Chaney jr and the portrayal of bruno i think he probably channeled a lot of that into this and it it's such a heart-wrenching portrayal i mean when he does when he tells them about the toy when he realizes there's no there's no way we're going to get out of this the kids are going to be taken away you know they're going to be institutionalized whatever or you know they're going to be put on trial for murder you know he tells them this story about this toy he's going to go get and i mean tears I, i have to think those are real tears it it because they seem to just come out of nowhere instantly when he goes, uh-huh, you know, when he, it's like, it's a, if we get to watch the toy and he's like, uh-huh. And it's this tear comes down his face. Oh. It, it's just, oh, it's, 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 it's every, it's, it's for real. It's, it's such a sincere, it's, it's all the great pathos that he poured into Larry Talbot, which is why we all love the Wolfman so much. It's right here. It, he's like you said, he's definitely got it. And I know a lot of, a lot of times Lon Chaney Jr., is considered a lesser actor than Karloff and Lugosi. And in some ways he probably didn't have the range of, of either of them to a point, but he could do a part like this better than they could. I think. I think so. Yeah. Hands down. I don't think I would trust this role. And and I love Lugosi. Don't get me wrong. And I love Karloff too, but I wouldn't trust a role like this to either one of them. I think for this, it's gotta be Lon Chaney Jr. Yes. Earlier, we were talking about things that kind of happen off screen. Yes, somebody kills a cat. That's all. I'm, yeah. And, and I, I shielded Wednesday's eyes when that scene happened. So, yeah. you know, I, I saved her from that. But you don't see it. Okay. No. You hear no. it and you see the results of it later. But boy, that sounds even worse. You yeah. hear it, but then there's a dinner party. I'll just say that. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, what a dinner party, too. I mean, on top of the main course, which is just like, oh, and my daughter walked in and was like, did they? And I'm like, yeah, they, they, yeah, they did. Uh, that is awful. But then, like, Bruno says, our diet is austere. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you ain't kidding. They're like eating weeds. I don't know what that right? tumbleweed is that they, they call fresh greens. Yeah. Would uh, you like some of our garden greens? And just dumps this chunk of, yeah. Of just yeah, like you said, it's like a tumbleweed kind of setup. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what that is, and I don't know what. I, I guess you know Virginia's literally just eating bugs and dirt. It looks like I, and mud. I don't. I don't know. There's like a centipede in there that she's eating, and it's 
and she offers some to Peter, and and, and Bert's <laughs> like, oh, I don't think you want any of that. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I don't want any of that. So. Yeah. That's a good scene, though, too, because there's a couple of times they cut to the two girls sitting next to each other. And they're and they're just, man, it's unnerving. And then there's the one scene, and I can't remember what the, it was in response to, but whatever it was in response to, it prompted them to look at each other and then kind of like nod and then look back in sync. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, they are they are great together. I mean, they are they really do come across as like two sisters. They probably get on each other's nerves constantly, but when they're up against somebody, they will unite. That's the feeling I get I get from them. And <laughs> there's one little scene at the end where Beverly Washburn like looks straight at the camera and makes this kind of face. And I don't know if that's supposed to be in the film. If that was like she like reacted to a take and Jack Hill really liked it because, you know, I mean, why not the way these characters are? But I just, I just love that because she just makes this kind of, Oh man, things are going crazy kind of face. <laughs> and they certainly are by that point. They're just, I, I, they're so endearing despite the horrible things they're doing. And, it really, and you kind of, yeah. you feel sorry for them because I mean, they obviously cannot help this, whatever, this Mary syndrome, wherever this started from, at age 10, these kids start to turn into this. And I mean, I don't know what Uncle Ned is at the end when they show up. I have no clue. I mean, not to, he's like got the, uh, I hate to use this term, but I can't think of the scientific name for it, but he's literally looks like the classic dog face boy or semi werewolf type creature. He's got like a furry face, you know, it, yeah. it's, it, and, and then one of the ants is like eyes, like incredibly disfigured and almost Quasimodo type look and see them very, very briefly. Yeah. But, you know, these kids, well, they're not now uh, <laughs> based on the ending of the film. But had they been had they lived, they would have changed to this. And that's just horrifying. And mm-hmm. uh, you really feel bad. They really have no choice. It's. Uh, so, so, I mean, they are so charming in a weird sort of way, despite, like we said, the awful things that they keep doing throughout this movie, especially with the girls, you can't help, but kind of want to, like you said, maybe watch it as a TV series. I, I, I would totally watch a, a, a spider baby, the series, you know, if it was done in this style, but yeah. there's a very finite ending to this and, uh, yeah, nobody really, um, makes it. Out, none of the original Mary family makes it out. Um, no. Which, oh man, the way Lon Chaney goes about it, and there's a tear, and oh. oh. Yeah. And, and he, and I like the fact that Bruno Lon Chaney Jr. is is really, I, I think he gets the impression that, that Peter's okay. He was nice to the kids. He doesn't want to see him get hurt. Uh, so he's telling him, you better get out of here. And he's like, I'm going, I'm going. And what kills me, though, is Peter came there with his sister, Emily. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was tied up in the chair when she come back in the house in her underwear, asking for Ralph. And, you know, <laughs> he thought he was going to get, you know, like stung by the spider baby. Uh, then he takes the chair, which apparently was like Jack Hill's grandmother's antique chair that they wrecked uh, and, and knocks it down the dumb waiter and breaks himself free and then grabs, and the girl he met five hours ago doesn't 
is it concerned that his sister was literally pulled into a pit by some <laughs> mutated cannibals? And just runs out with his new girlfriend. I know his sister was a gold digger, and she honestly didn't seem like a very likable person. But I don't think she deserved that, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that part, again, I'm not sure Peter escaped the Mary syndrome either, because he seems like he's a couple bubbles off. <laughs> too, <maybe. laughs> a couple bubbles off. I like it. All right. He's not level at all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know, I want to start wrapping up here, but I can't wrap up without making a comment about the song at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Which is awesome. Now, when it comes to copyright, who owns the rights to what, music, even if it appears in a public domain film, might still be under copyright to somebody else. That said, this is a public domain film. I think when... It is. It gets stuck in your head too. Just in Lon Chaney Jr. like singing it, narrating it. It's weird though because I I have on my Halloween playlist I have the Monster Holiday song that Lon Chaney did. He sings them in similar ways, so I'm kind of getting the two mixed up. But Santa Claus and Cannibal Orgy don't necessarily go together. of Ronald Stein's scores and, and film work. And there was like five or six tracks from Spider Baby, including this. So I was very familiar with the song and loved it even before I saw the film. The CD itself also has like a second verse or the takes of a second verse that didn't make the cut, which Ooh. is kind of fun too. Or maybe some bloopers. I don't know. But there's one... I, I just can hear in my head Lon Chaney Jr. screwing up a line where he's talking about boys and girls. But he says boys and goyles. Goyles, and then he starts laughing about it, and it's just—it's charming. Goyles, his, his his laugh at the beginning is just the oh, way man. it's like totally silent, and then you just start out with that laugh, and it's you know, mm-hmm. the spider web and spider baby, and mm-hmm. I like the little very limited animation that pops up, the little caricatures, especially the one of Ralph. That's a lot of fun, uh, and uh, it—it's the opening the title sequence is just great, and I. I love the Ronald Stein score and he did the haunted palace and uh, I love the score in that film too. So, oh, I yeah. mean, it's, uh, and I know you're a big fan of, of that movie too. And it's just such an earworm. I'll be, I'll be hearing that for like a month now in my head. Mm-hmm. That's the, just the Bane theme plus the, the Lon Chaney uh, narration slash vocals at the beginning. <laughs> it's great. It's just overall great. It's a really good film. Uh, when you think about Lon Chaney movies, I know we immediately go to the monster movies and things like that, but Spider-Baby really deserves to be in the conversation when you're thinking about great genre Lon Chaney movies. This one's really the tops for me when it comes to the non-monster stuff. I guess I'd put this maybe right... I'm going to take that back. I'll put it right underneath some of the Inner Sanctum work. But this is just so good. Right, and yeah. I, I think it. of his later output, this is probably... I mean, he's great in, in supporting roles, but this is definitely his, his probably his standout film in his, his later years. Again, it's it's another one of those cases where you kind of wish this was his last movie. Just like kind of wish Karloff hadn't made those Mexican 
<laughs> horror films <laughs> and just let targets be his last movie. Uh, but, uh, but you can, you can imagine, you know, that, uh, that this is, his, this, I guess is probably his last where he's like the lead. Maybe there might be another one that I'm not aware of, but as far as I know, this is the last movie where he's, he's the lead because I guess his health probably didn't, uh, started to deteriorate to the point where he, he wouldn't be the lead in too many uh, films past this anyway. So, well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say I have to defend the 1971 classic Dracula versus Frankenstein because I yes. love that film so much. <laughs> uh, unreasonably, unironically so, I love that movie. And he's in it, and he's doing the best he absolutely can. Yes, he is. And yes, that came is. out, what, uh, four years after Spider-Baby. But like you were saying earlier, Spider-Baby was actually shot a couple of years, pretty much finished a couple of years before it actually saw release. So we actually had a... A few more years between the launch we saw in Spider Baby than the launch we saw in Dracula versus Frankenstein. And I wanted to double check the years on that. So I hopped over again. I'm going to wrap up the conversation with this. Hopped back over to the Internet Movie Database to look at Lon Chaney Jr.'s filmography. And somebody's having a little bit of fun with us because they put his very last role as having been in the Michael Jackson video for Thriller <laughs> as a zombie. And I know that's not true. <laughs> IMDB, man. I mean, it, anymore, it's like, I, I think they get less credible like every day. I just I I hate to say that because I use it a lot, you know, just mm-hmm. for fun and then for podcasting. But I there was a there was an actor. We did the time of their lives. Yeah. Ad- Abbott Costello. Film, yeah. There was yeah. an actor. There was an actor in that film that was supposed to be in Sister Act 2. But he died in 1987. So how is he in Sister Act 2, which came out in 1993 or 4 or something? You know, I, I could see, like, if there was some stock footage or right. something that's on a television or something like that. That's possible. But Lon Chaney Jr. did not play a zombie in the Michael Jackson video for Thriller. Just saying. <laughs> uh, somebody's having a little bit of fun. Somebody paid for an IMDb Pro account to make it easier to edit something. I don't know. But that's just, Yeah. I wish Lon Chaney Jr. had been in Michael Jackson's girl, even <laughs> if they were watching the Wolfman in the theater when Michael and the girl are, you know, at the theater or whatever. Right. But, uh, but they're not right. They're, they're watching. Not. What are they watching in the theater? It's another. Well, they're watching a movie that they shot for the, yeah. Cause Michael Jackson's in it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it. They're watching a movie with it's a, that, that video is like, it'll give you a, a, yeah, a headache just trying to figure out the, this inside of that, inside of this and that. Uh, but, uh, but hey, it's got Vincent Price, you know, so uh, he's not in it, but he's in he's obviously uh, in the song. So, uh, yeah, I know Lon Chaney Jr. showed up on an episode of The Monkees uh, after this was filmed, but probably around the time this came out. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was he was on. The, and I think he I think he might even played a character named Lenny on there uh, on, on The Monkees, which is, you know, funny. Uh, that's you know, I, that's the first thing I remember seeing an older Lon Chaney Jr. in as a kid because I watched a lot of the monkeys as a kid. Uh, and oddly enough, Sid Haig, I remember him being a, a henchman for King Tut on Batman. I think that's the first time I encountered him. And then you're, you know, around that same time, probably uh, he was the bad guy on Jason of star command, <laughs> the Saturday morning <laughs> live action TV show. <laughs> well, man, this was fun to revisit this film. I haven't watched it since I showed it in the monster kid movie club a while back. So it's it a lot of fun to revisit and just explore a little bit more with somebody who loves the movie too. Uh, once again, listeners, you can find Chris Franklin at the fire and water podcast network. What's the URL for that? 
fireandwaterpodcast.com. There you go. And check out the House of Franklin Stein 2021 edition or go back. I'm assuming the other ones are in the archives. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's actually on the Supermates podcast, but uh, we switch over. It's basically Supermates is just the house for the House of Franklin Stein nowadays uh, for the most part. But, yeah, it's uh, if you go back through the Supermates uh, show, you'll find all the, the past episodes are all back all eight seasons of it and we we do cover all of the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman movies. I have Lon Chaney Jr. and Peter Cushing have been featured in every single House of Franklin Stein and I will make sure they are featured in every single House of Franklin Stein. <laughs> Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. The big screen gives us more space on land, sea, and in the air to challenge the most bataclysmic collection of super criminals that ever plotted to take over the world. Number one, the Riddler. Question, who's going to make the feathers fly and knock Batman and Robin out of the sky? Number two, the Joker. Have you heard this one? It'll kill you, Batman. Number three, the penguin. There are two eggs this wily bird is going to scramble. Batman and Robin. <laughs> Number four, the Catwoman. Oh, you're going to see the perfect crime when I get Batman in my claws. And that's just a sample of the exciting exploits ahead in our first feature motion picture. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. They have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive for three centuries. Only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein in color, rated GP. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, like I say every single week, thank you for spending this week with us here at the podcast as we nerd out, as we geek out about our favorite topic, monster movies, kaiju films, famous monsters, and what have you. 
I just love having you here along for the ride. Big thanks to Mark and Kenny for helping to make this episode even better than it would have been without them. It's just awesome to have this community kind of sprout up around the podcast. If you're interested in contributing a segment to Monster Kid Radio, either on a regular basis or just like as a one-off, drop me a line. You can get a hold of us by leaving me some voicemail or an email, either about that or just general feedback for the show like this. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, that's on our website over at monsterkidradio.net, where we've got links to our Twitter page, our Facebook group, our Patreon, our Reddit, and our Discord. So go check all of that out, as well as links to everything you've heard about here on the show and our Amazon affiliate link. So you can help support the show that way. If you're dropping a few bucks over at Amazon, it doesn't cost you anything extra to shop at Amazon through our affiliate link. Even if it's not about something that you heard here on the show, we just have a general affiliate link as well. It just takes a few pennies out of Jeff Bezos's pocket and puts it into monster kid radios, which really every little bit helps. Big thanks to Bill Mize as well, fellow podcaster who is doing something pretty cool with helping us out this month. I don't want to put him on the spot or embarrass him, but big thanks to Bill. I appreciate you, sir. And of course, I appreciate all the patrons over at Patreon. Couldn't do what I do without you. Let's talk about what's coming up next week. I actually know if everything works out. Next week, we're going to be talking with a friend of the show, somebody who's been on the show before, somebody who has gotten me a really cool t-shirt promoting his podcast. You know, I don't have very many t-shirts supporting or promoting other people's podcasts. I just have Monster Kid Radio t-shirts, except for the t-shirt for Record All Monsters. We are going to be joined by Record All Monsters' own Robert Kelly, and we're going to talk about the movie The Vampire and the Ballerina. All the terror of the unknown reaches out from forgotten centuries, and a horror legend 2,000 years old comes alive as a hideous demon rises from the grave to bring a new high-end horror to the motion picture screen. The Vampire and the Ballerina. No one is safe from this monster of the night, this creature from the crypt of the living dead, who stalks the countryside in search of victims for his insatiable bloodlust. The Vampire and the Ballerina. Into the evil domain of the Vampire King comes a company of beautiful dancers. And the most desirable of them all is the ballerina. Helpless in the grip of his satanic power that brings everlasting enslavement to her soul. The scream has never reached such heights of fright. Such soul-shivering suspense. Such heart-stopping horror. You will remember for always the startling, haunting motion picture. The Vampire and the Ballerina. 
And then I'll be appearing on a future episode of his podcast as well. So stay tuned for that. I'll tell you about it when it happens. We may even talk about it when we record. That recording hasn't happened yet. So let's hope there aren't any technical difficulties and the world doesn't catch fire between now and Monday because Monday's when I'm recording with Mr. Kelly about the vampire and the ballerina. It's going to be a good time. I'm really looking forward to it. Also, big thanks to Dr. Bob Tesla, who included me in the recent mini-series, I guess you could call it, run of episodes of his show. I got to play a role in the wraparound segments of the movie. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for that as well, because I believe he posted those episodes on YouTube. Of course, you could have watched them on Twitch as well, which is where they premiered. Speaking of Twitch, we have a Twitch Look at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. This Saturday, we are showing Italian horror films and monster movies. Around 11 a.m. Pacific is when the pre-show starts, and the noon is when the movies kick in. Scott Morris from Disney Indiana, he does the pre-show and then the movies. You know, we have giveaways, we have trailers and promos, and just a good time with a live chat. I work during the day, but as soon as I get off work, I usually hop on as well. I try to make an appearance on camera as well and just interact with you because it's just a lot of fun to do that. So check us out this Saturday, 11 a.m. Pacific or noon Pacific or anytime during the day, Pacific or otherwise, because we're going to be there on Saturday watching a whole bunch of monster movies. And then on Tuesday, we do the same thing. It's just for a shorter period of time. 3.30 or so is when that pre-show starts. And then around 4 o'clock, we show movies and we're going to be showing the first six chapters of the serial zombies of the stratosphere and then another serial as well we've been having a lot of fun just showing serials over there and zombies of the stratosphere uh, that's kind of cool it's got leonard nimoy in it my man spock is <laughs> in zombies from the stratosphere it's gonna be a good time so we have that on Saturday. We have the Tuesday stream. We have next week's episode. I don't, I don't know what else is going on, but uh, I already feel like that's a lot. So I'm going to wrap up and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.